Welcome to the Book Blast podcast. Our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy, showcases a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses and a special guest. Today I'm delighted to be interviewing the award-winning and internationally best-selling Moroccan novelist, essayist, critic and poet, Taha Ben Jeloun, whose latest book, published in English, is On Terrorism, Conversations with My Daughter, published by Small Axes, an imprint of Hope Road Publishing. This interview is recorded in French via Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown. The English translation is by Anissa Abbas-Higgins and is read by Issa Naziri. You have written extensively about Moroccan culture, the immigrant experience, human rights and sexual identity. An author who intervenes in politics on terrorism is your third book in a series in which the previous titles are Racism and also Islam Explained. It takes the form of a semi-imagined dialogue between you and your daughter. What drew you to write this book? My purpose is educational because children ask me questions. I imagine there are many families where children ask their parents difficult or uncomfortable questions, especially when terrorist attacks occur and people can't understand why the innocent should die in this way. So I've tried to get to the root of this phenomenon, and I explained that terrorism has always existed in the political sphere, that it's a way of making people quake or tremble. The Latin word for terror conveys the idea of tremor, so it's making people tremble with fear in order to attain something by force, or simply to spread panic and hatred. So I had to explain that, and of course I used simple language so children could understand. And I went into a number of girls' classes in schools, and I chose my words extremely carefully, because words are dangerous. You have to define them very clearly. And when you explain things carefully to children, they understand you perfectly well. Yes, words are powerful. I think we're living in a very different time from the 20th century. Terrorism has become a special kind of weapon. It's as if we're at war with an enemy we can't see, an enemy we don't know, rather like a virus. And there are so many attacks where innocent people lose their lives and we want to know why. We want to know what the purpose of all this is. And of course we are living in a time of great violence, but I think it's less violent than our grandparents' times, the 30s and 40s. A terrible world war. We're not at that point. But we do live in a state of constant tension because the modern world is so interconnected. With globalization that serves to exacerbate inequality, social and economic injustices. So we live in a very troubled world. Can you briefly describe for our listeners the roots of terrorism in France and what are its intentions? You have to understand that in France, and it's the same thing for other European countries, even Great Britain, terrorism has a specific origin, which is that of an area of the Middle East that was taken over by the so-called emir who since died, al-Baghdadi, who wanted to create an Islamic state that would rule over the world. When you look at James Bond films, there's always a madman, an evil visionary, a dictator hiding away on an island who wants to change the world to suit his ideas and achieve world domination. And of course, all James Bond films end with the destruction of this terrifying project. So it's sort of the same thing with Islamist terrorism. In other words, terrorism is based on Islam, although of course it has nothing to do with Islam, to spread an ideology, a doctrine that goes against individual liberty, women and democracy. It's nothing new. There have always been people who want nothing to do with democracy and justice and who seek to dominate by cruel, violent means. So in the case of France, France has been involved in Middle Eastern politics in various ways, in Africa and North Africa, and in Iran too, but mostly in the Middle East. And this terrorism in the name of Islam is settling scores with France for its support of various regimes. 
and France also carries on a secret foreign policy that sometimes provokes a violent reaction among groups that are associated with international terrorism. For example, when the caricatures of the Prophet Mohammed were published in Denmark, there were French newspapers, in this case Charlie Hebdo, that published some of these drawings. These cartoons, and there were certain elements, who were of course brainwashed and controlled by Islamic State, Al-Qaeda and all these anti-Western movements, certain elements who declared that the journalists who had dared to attack the Prophet should be punished. And as we know, they murdered the whole of the Charlie Hebdo team, an absolute horror, in January 2015. So we're in a situation of settling scores and punishing, which means that democratic states are forced to take into account the existence of this threat that is unseen. France had a colonial presence, particularly in Algeria, and in Lebanon and Syria too. France was involved in the history of these countries, and sometimes there's a comeback 40 or 50 years later, in the form of this kind of violence. But terrorism can never be justified, whatever the problems caused by one state or another. Your narrative shows how Islam cannot be reduced to a single idea. Far-right extremists in the West conflate Wahhabism, the Sunni fundamentalist form of Islam practiced in Saudi Arabia, with mainstream Islam, thereby reinforcing Islamic extremism. What are the more moderate Islamic schools of thought that are compatible with democracy and human rights, which could be debated in public by Western leaders as an antidote to radicalism? Sunni Islam, Orthodox Islam, has two main ideologies. There is also the split into Sunni and Shia that came about after the Prophet's death. But Sunni Islam is the dominant form of Islam. So it has two main schools of thought. The Wahhabism you mentioned that comes from an Arab theologian of the 18th century, whose reading of the Quran was completely literal, word for word. There was no symbolism, no interpretation. The Quran must be followed blindly, harshly, with no mercy shown for those who stray from the established order. And the other kind of Islam, which I will call normal Islam. I prefer this to the word moderate, normal because it's practiced by the vast majority of Muslims. This normal Islam is similar to the other two monotheistic religions with the same values. It doesn't seek to kill others. But we don't hear about this kind of Islam. It's disappeared from view. All we see is the Islam of terror and violence, and this has caused great problems for Muslims around the world. So much so that now if you say, I'm a Muslim, to someone in the US, it's as if you're saying, I'm a terrorist. Stupidity and ignorance of some people. And when you have George Bush or Trump demonstrating such crass ignorance, it's been a great blow to Islam. And then you have the Gulf states like Saudi Arabia, a Wahhabi state, reaching out to the US, negotiating with countries that are enemies of Arab and Muslim peoples. There is an enormous confusion. All of which means now that nowadays in both Europe and America, being a Muslim is seen in a poor light. In On Terrorism, you write about the death of your cousin Leila Alaoui, killed in a terrorist attack in Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso. Muslims are often victims of Wahhabi extremism. Sunni and Shia are at loggerheads, while the United States and Israel are the two major nuclear states in the world regarded as the greatest threat to world peace by a wide range of citizens. Are Western and Islamic worldviews so fundamentally incompatible that they are just destined to perpetual conflict? What would it take for the divide to be bridged? The gulf is very wide indeed. In an attack like the one in Ouagadougou, where poor little Leila lost her life, 
but she's not alone. There are thousands of other unnamed individuals killed by bombs in stations, trains, planes, so we're in a state of great unrest, more or less, all over the world. And for civilizations to come to an understanding, the first thing that must be recognized is that civilization and culture are fundamental to living together, and that the purpose of civilization is not to disagree and wage war on each other, but to talk to one another and to exist side by side. Let me give you a current example, quite specific and shocking. There is the virus, which of course we all know about, threatening the whole world. A French laboratory is carrying out research to find a vaccine and has received a great deal of American money. The head of the laboratory has said recently that the first to receive the vaccine will be the Americans. This is an example of the world we're living in. This is something new. For example, when Pasteur was carrying out his research against infectious diseases like tuberculosis and the plague, he wasn't doing it only for his nearest neighbours, he was doing it for the planet, and now the whole world benefits from his research and the work of other scientists. As soon as we start buying scientists, as soon as we say, I'm richer than you and I want to look after my own first, this is a failure of dialogue, an inability of states to work together. And we can see what a man like Trump can do. The campaign he's waging against Europe, he wants nothing less than the disintegration of Europe. And unfortunately, if he is re-elected, he could well fulfill that ambition. So cultures have stopped communicating and started excluding other cultures. And we find ourselves in a war that has repercussions for the lives of the poorest people. During the pandemic and lockdown, has there been the same appreciation in France of the role played by immigrant and minority communities in keeping the health service and the economy running as there has been here in England? Well, we've had a lot of problems here. The epidemic's been very badly handled from the outset because the Macron government lacks experience. Macron himself lacks experience. He hasn't had to endure any hardships in his life. He's treated it all as a technical problem without any real humanity. We were without masks until just three days ago. If France had the mask we needed from February onwards, we could have avoided thousands of deaths. And we've seen recently that the French health system is one of the best in the world. Except for the last 30 years, every government has tried to undermine it because it's costly. So money has been taken out of the health service and invested in the police and hospitals have been closed. So when the epidemic hit, France was very badly equipped. Unlike, for example, Germany, which has dealt with the epidemic much more effectively than France. And we've seen too that there are about 12,000 doctors and medical professors of North African origin working in the health system. People who came here as immigrants and settled here and became French. And the large majority of nurses and care assistants come from overseas, from the Maghreb, other parts of Africa, overseas territories, etc. But people don't mention this. And now, of course, everyone applauds the health workers at eight in the evening. But you have to realize that the France of the National Front, National Rally as it is now, wanted and still wants to expel all foreigners from France. Well, without all the doctors and care workers of non-French origin, France would have been devastated. But I have noticed lately on television that there are a lot more names from the Maghreb, a lot more non-French names among the doctors and specialists invited to comment on the progress of the epidemic. Marginalising and harassing Muslims risks radicalising them and turning young people into jihadis. Despite the elegant speeches made by President Macron, the CRS as in the special riot police forces, often act outside the law. How do you think the state could control its police force and its violent blunders? And will it ever be possible for the toxic legacy of colonialism to be acknowledged, 
and the public narrative about Islam be re-evaluated, along with the social policies of the French Republic. There are a lot of questions. The French Republic is animated by a volonté to defend... There are quite a few questions there. The main aim of the French police is to uphold the law and defend the democratic rule of law. The police are driven by the desire to do this, but sometimes they go too far and there are so-called blunders. When the police get involved in neighbourhoods neglected by the French state, places that are under-resourced and marginalised, for example like Saint-Saint-Denis, the 93rd department, these suburbs are home to millions of immigrants and people living in poverty. A quarter of the population here lives below the poverty line. This is the region of France with the highest unemployment rate, almost 40% of the population, an underdeveloped nation. And there are three times fewer hospital beds here than just about any other department in France. So this is an area that is already primed for violence and rioting. And every once in a while, young people rise up and of course the police get involved. And there's violence. Sometimes people are killed. So things flare up like this once in a while. Every government, when it comes to power, right and left, claims that it'll do something to help these suburbs. None of them have done anything. There's so much failure in the schools because, of course, they aren't well-resourced, etc. The young people go off the rails and get mixed up in drugs and crime. Delinquency holds sway and the police stay away. So when Macron came to power, I already knew him. I'd met him in 2007 when he was just a young man and we were on first-name terms. And I said to him after he was elected, you know Emmanuel, I know the suburbs quite well. I've done a lot of work on these issues. If you want my input, I'd be happy to help. And he said, yes, of course, sure, I'll call you. Of course, he never did. He called me once or twice for meetings and receptions, but we never sat down to work together. And ever since he was elected, he's been promising to make a statement about Islam in France, but he never has, because it's a very difficult, complex issue. France has a real problem with the Muslims. Governments, both right and left, have attempted. In fact, Jean-Pierre Chevènement, a former minister of the interior and a friend of mine, he and I tried, on our own initiative, to form a commission to improve the understanding of Islam. But it didn't go anywhere. France has a serious problem with its Muslim population, but it does very little to understand Muslims' needs or to address or appease any of the tension. So it's very complicated. It isn't at all clear-cut. There are neighbourhoods in Marseille where the police never go. Ruled over by gangs, drug dealers, some of them just kids. I've seen it for myself. They get hold of kids when they're 13 or 14, failing at school. They groom them, they give them 100 euros a day. We know what happens when a 13-year-old has that kind of money in his pocket. It's a lost generation living in a world of juvenile crime and, one day, trouble. As a supporter of secularism, do you still think that no compromise could be made in the name of multiculturalism? On the question of secularism, I'm quite clear about this. Religions have their place. Islam in the mosque, Judaism in the synagogue, Catholicism in the church. Religion has no place in politics, education, the public sphere. Religion is a private, personal matter. It's a personal choice that must be respected if we're to achieve anything at all. But France is a secular country, and this is something Muslims don't understand. They confuse secularism with atheism. But I say, no, you're free to believe what you want, to pray in your own home. There's no reason for you to go out and convert other people to Islam. That's all there is to it. The geography of fear is a theme in your writing. There's the economic crisis, the rise of nationalism, the cultural divide which cuts across Europe, 
the COVID-19 crisis, ingrained materialism and a lack of spirituality. Added to this is the fear expressed by you and your daughter in On Terrorism that Muslims in the West are viewed as dangerous people preparing to attack the free world at any time. In turn, these fears have their counterpart in Muslim communities recoiling from Western belligerence. Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the possibility that future generations will find a way forwards, or is each generation a lost generation? How do you see a way for Europe to transform itself in the face of these existential challenges? The answer is simple. It's culture that will save us. Not political decisions that aren't followed up. When, for example, you bring young people of all colours, races, origins together to form an orchestra and play music together, or to put on a play or make a film together, this is how people get to know each other. This is when you see people from the seemingly opposing backgrounds coming together. So, if you don't give the arts and culture the means to flourish and grow, we'll never move on from the state of confusion and permanent tension, and ignorance will take the place of understanding and knowledge. The only way to counteract ignorance is through the culture and the arts, music, theatre, film, poetry, literature, dance, singing, all the things that bring people together. A solo played by a musician can move people to tears. We can be moved listening to a poem, whether it's in Arabic, Hebrew, English. It touches emotions that unite us as humans, all living on the same planet. And we don't pay enough attention to all of this. The world of today needs governments to put more money into culture than into armaments and all of that. Is Morocco family territory for you? Did you grow up in a rural or urban community? And to what extent did religion play a part? I'm 100% urban, a city dweller. I was born in Fez, the city of cities. The Islam I grew up with is very gentle, kind, tolerant. I have wonderful memories of being taught about Islam with no hint of violence, hatred or intolerance. None at all. That's what my parents taught me. It was when I came to France that I came into contact with Islamism, terrorism and all of that. So for me, Morocco is a country that plays tolerance at its heart, as part of its definition of itself. But sadly, Morocco hasn't been spared religious extremism. And now for the last 10 years or so, we've had an Islamist party in the government, as a result of fair and open elections called the Justice and Development Party. This is a regressive government that tries to work against the progressive ideas of King Mohammed VI, an extraordinary man who's tried to lead the country away from this backward trend. So there is a sort of cold war going on between Islamists who are very popular and successful in Morocco and the king, who's a man of progress and modernity, a humanist. So at the moment with the COVID-19 crisis, the king has been wonderful. He was the first in the world to close the borders. He imposed a systematic lockdown for everyone with a curfew between six in the evening and five in the morning, which means that now with a population of 35 million, we've only had 188 deaths. That's nothing compared to France where people are still dying. Have you ever been on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to the Kaaba in Mecca? Yes, but I was sent by Le Monde in 1974 to report on the Hajj from the inside, for the first time in the world. I was a very young journalist at the time, so I did the Hajj. But since I did it for non-religious reasons, I don't think it really counts. You were imprisoned for 18 months in 1966 for taking part in student demonstrations in Casablanca, have you written a book about these experiences? Yes, it's called Punishment and was published three years ago. 
but it wasn't a normal prison. We were detained in an army camp and our parents were told we were doing military service, but we were there as a punishment. The book did very well in France. People learned something about my past and about Morocco. Can literature in translation change perceptions of our world? How does it unite people and increase empathy? Why? Oh yes, obviously. Much of my culture, my reading, is in translation. I was nourished by Latin American literature, which has greatly influenced me, and I read it in very good French translations. I can't express myself in English, and my work needs to be translated. Translation is essential. It's fundamental. During the Islamic Enlightenment, so much was translated from Greek, Arabic, Latin, English. Translation represents the peak of civilization and the exchange of ideas. With success and fame come pressure and responsibility. How do you manage to not take it all with you to your desk and simply create that quiet space to be yourself and write? <laughs> I lead a simple life, at home with my work. I'm not interested in the bright lights. I'm not a movie star. I'm a writer, a painter. I just write at home, that's all. What gives you hope? Young people today seem to be leading the fight for protecting the environment. Most young people today are concerned about ecology. They can see that their parents and grandparents have ruined the planet and they want to reclaim it. So it's young people who give me hope, not the old at all. What are you working on now? What can your fans look forward to? I've written another book for children. It's coming out in August. This one is about philosophy, philosophy for our children. All the basic concepts of philosophy, justice, morality, fear, love, etc. explained in a very simple language for children of 12 and over to understand. Children need to learn about all these basic everyday concepts and not wait until their last year at the lycée to study philosophy. And I hope it will be translated into English too. Thank you, Tara Benjeloun, for a fabulous interview. To find out more about Small Axes, visit website hoperoadpublishing.com and their Twitter feed is at Hope Road Publish. On Terrorism, Conversations with My Daughter is published by Small Axes and available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Amazon. To buy it from your local independent bookseller, you can find your nearest store by visiting booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Bookblast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, translator Anissa Abbas Higgins for translating the French into English, and to Issa Naziri for reading the English version of the interview for Taha Benjeloun and to author Tara Benjeloun for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Book Blast podcast.